Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Годом вас. С новым веком. Владимир Путин's decision to invade Ukraine is rooted in the false historical assumption that Ukraine is not really a nation and should not have a state. It's rooted in a centuries-old imperialist belief that is Russia's destiny and right to rule the Eurasian landmass. And these beliefs and assumptions, which are a central part of Russian strategic culture, were prevalent before Putin came onto the scene, and they will likely still be prevalent after he departs. So how does a nation's imperial legacy drive its foreign policy? Our guest this week literally wrote the book on that, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic studies and author of the recently published and very timely book empires of eurasia how imperial legacies shape international security welcome back to the vertical jeff thanks thanks for having me great to, great to have you so jeff i know this book's been a long in the works for a long time but in the end of at the end of the day your timing could hardly have been better in terms of its timeliness in terms of when it was finally published And I, I do want to drill down into your research into the Russian imperial legacy and how it helps us contextualize and understand the current war in Ukraine. But the book is, of course, about more than just Russia. It's about imperial legacies in Eurasia, including Russia, Turkey, China, and Iran. So to get us started, just can you kind of lay out the main arguments and the broad thesis of the book for our readers? Sure. And I would encourage people to uh, acquire and read the book to uh, find out more about this. But to uh, summarize it briefly, what I'm arguing is that to understand the approach to foreign and security policy that these four states have taken, one has to look on their contemporary leadership, the fact that they are to varying degrees uh, authoritarian states, um, and look at the way that they're actually constructed. And that means understanding uh, their history as empire which has continued to shape uh, the way that they understand their role in the world uh, and has shaped them uh, geographically and institutionally. Um, and with regard to the, the Russian war in Ukraine in particular, I think what's important is, as you hinted at the beginning, this sense that uh, goes well beyond Vladimir Putin, but is widely shared among the Russian elite, uh, that Ukraine is legitimately part of not just a Russian sphere of influence, but part of Russia itself. That is a product uh, of Russia's imperial expansion, or I should say the Grand Duchy of Moscow's imperial mm. expansion, uh, which took in uh, the lands that now comprise Ukraine um, in the period from you know the 17th to the 18th century. Um, and so sort of understanding that process and then how it was then justified uh, and processed within Russia uh, helps explain where some of these attitudes come from and explain some of the um, the um, emphasis on reestablishing control over Ukraine that exists, uh, again, beyond Putin, right. a lot of the Russian elite today. 
Yeah, this is something I always want to stress that this problem is not going to go away when Putin goes away. This problem is pretty enduring. Just in terms of your findings in the book, I mean, did you find the in these four cases, these four countries, did you find the imperial legacy to be determinative or was it just a contributing factor to the country's foreign policy behavior? Well, I think assigning any one factor too much explanatory power is is, uh, always a danger if you're a scholar or an analyst. Um, I certainly think that understanding Russian, Turkish, Chinese, and Iranian foreign policy requires an enormous amount of information and analytic prowess and and nuance. I don't think there's any one single factor that explains uh, what all four of these big complicated countries are doing. Um, I will say though, that to understand their approach to um, their regions, to um, what in the Russian context is often referred to as a near abroad, and for making sense of the way that their elites understand the role that they should play in the world, I think making sense of that imperial legacy is, is really, really important. Uh, because the, the rulers of Russia, Turkey, Iran, and China all think of those countries as being something greater than normal states. They don't think mm-hmm. of them as nation states. They don't think of them as territorially bounded. Uh, they think of them as some kind of, of civilizational states uh, with a right, uh, if not a duty, uh, to manage order uh, in their wider neighborhoods uh, and to have some kind of a special status uh, globally. Now, if you look at these four states, though, the the one that's acted the most, they've all acted to a degree uh, mm-hmm. on this on this belief in their in empire. Um, but it's only Russia that is next the territory of another country so far. Uh, it's only Russia that has started an all-out war to effectively wipe a country off the map um, and absorb it into into itself. Do you see Russia as an outlier in the of these four, or or do you see the other they're just a little bit ahead of the others? Well, it, it depends on your time frame, right? So uh, Russia is not the only one that has annexed territory. Uh, one of the stories I, I tell in the book is about um, Turkey's annexation of Hatay, right. Right. Uh, which uh, used to be called Alexandretta uh, and was part of Syria, uh, or well, the French mandate of Syria until the 1930s, um, and then was annexed uh, by Turkey. Um, Iran uh, has not sought to annex territory, but has certainly uh, disrupted the political order uh, in neighboring states through its deployment of proxies uh, like Hezbollah. Uh, And so even though it doesn't claim uh, Iraq or Lebanon uh, or Syria as its own territory, uh, it certainly uh, sought to establish uh, very hierarchical relationships over them. Um, And then with China, you know, Tibet uh, was effectively uh, independent, right. although wasn't recognized as, as being such, for the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and it was only in the 1950s uh, when uh, the, the PRC army marched in and forcibly subordinated Tibet mm-hmm. to Chinese sovereignty. So I think if you open the aperture wide enough, you can see that all four of these states to varying degrees have, have done some of these behaviors. What's different about the Russian case, I think is, is one, that this is going on today uh, mm-hmm. in in Ukraine uh, and elsewhere. And partially, I think that's a result of the fact that uh, for Russia, this imperial legacy that I talk about is a little bit closer to the surface than it is in, in Turkey, Iran, or China. And that's because the, the real imperial manifestation of Russia, that is the Soviet Union, only collapsed in 1991. So, you know, the other four, they all, or the other three, sorry, 
they all um, attempted to build something like a post, a truly post-imperial state in the first part of the 20th century. And they succeeded to varying degrees. None succeeded entirely, but the, the connection to empire is a little bit more distant. Uh, even though the Soviet Union uh, claimed to be uh, against imperialism and, and portrayed itself as an anti-imperial state, it was in a lot of ways the continuation uh, of the Russian empire. Um, and it was an ideological empire that had this idea of using Marxist-Leninist ideology as a way of subordinating uh, other states to its authority. Um, and that only goes away in 1991. And you have a leadership in Russia today uh, that was a product of that system. Uh, Putin and Patrushev and the people around them uh, are all products of the Soviet education system and not just the education system, but the Soviet security services yeah. charged with running this empire. Uh, so it's not surprising that I think for them, it's a much more direct, visceral uh, reality than it is for the leaders in the other three. Right. And all these, uh, I'm gonna, before I go kind of drill deeper into Russia, I kind of want to kind of get the broad, look at the broader picture here. All four of these countries are in proximity to each other. And yeah. something you would look at in the book a bit is how they, how these empires are, are, are bumping into each other or could bump into each other. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you're right. Um, they, uh, as empires and as post-imperial states, uh, they have uh, frequently interacted with and fought one another in these interstitial zones uh, in places like the South Caucasus uh, and Central Asia. Um, and those regions today remain very much uh, on the front lines of, of the competition for influence between them. Uh, so we've seen Russia and Turkey uh, in particular um, struggle with one another for influence. Um, currently uh, in Ukraine, uh, Turkey's a, a pretty active participant there, um, but also uh, in the South Caucasus where uh, you know, Turkey is a very strong supporter of Azerbaijan mm -hmm. uh, and Armenia is uh, allied to Russia through its membership in the Collective Security Treaty Organization. And of course, when Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a war, uh, in 2020 over Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, it was, among other things, kind of a, a proxy competition between Russia and Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen Turkey and Iran uh, struggle for control in a number of places in the Middle East, uh, Syria being one of them, mm -hmm. and of course Russia is a big player in Syria as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then China is kind of uh, a little bit of an outlier here because where its uh, revisionist aspirations are focused are less uh, on these interstitial areas and more off of its own maritime periphery. Mm -hmm. so China's ambitions today focus primarily on the South China Sea, the East China Sea, Taiwan, uh, like, which are not high priorities for Russia, Turkey, or Iran. But of course, China has ambitions in Central Asia um, that are mostly geoeconomic, uh, but over the longer term certainly could have larger strategic and political implications. And those would uh, be felt uh, first and foremost by the countries in the region, but also right. by Russia, uh, which is uh, up until the present, the main security provider in Central Asia, um, and to lesser degrees in Turkey and Iran. Uh, as well, you know, Turkey portrays itself as kind of a, a patron for the the greater Turkic world, which includes, um, you know, many of the countries of Central Asia and uh, Azerbaijan, um, and Iran to a lesser degree. I think is is trying to build uh, strategic economic ties and influence in the region um, that do not 100% align with with Chinese priorities either. 
No, and, and the thing that strikes strikes me also is that these four countries, at least on the surface, at least nominally, have good relations with each other, which is interesting when you look at that that the, there there's a lot of arena for competition and expectations that their interests are going to clash mm-hmm. um, in this space, but yet. On the surface, they all have very good relations with each other. And this kind of played itself out during the Karabakh War when Russia didn't really intervene on Armenia's side. They pretty much let Turkey have their way. How did how did that look? How do you interpret that? Mm-hmm. Just a, yeah. a desire to keep good relations with Ankara by Moscow? Or, or Well, I, I think there's a couple of things at, at play there. So on the bigger question, uh, I, I do talk about this in the book. There's mm-hmm. this tension between... Um, the regional competition that we were just talking about, in which all four states are, are implicated to different degrees, and then the larger um, emphasis on what I call making a world safe for empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, to varying degrees, uh, all of them have overlapping uh, strategic priorities. All of them uh, are revisionist powers. Uh, I think Turkey to a much lesser degree than the other three, but nevertheless. Um, and in that sense, uh, are seeking to um, cooperate uh, in the interest of you know, shifting some of the bases uh, of global order more in their own interests. Uh, and that means downplaying uh, or managing among themselves these uh, regional uh, competitions or conflicts. Um, as far as, as the Karabakh war goes, uh, I think we have to look at it both from the, the Russia-Turkey angle and also from the Russia-Armenia-Azerbaijan angle. Um, so, yes, I think part of the reason that uh, Russian support for Armenia was limited um, had to do with uh, not picking a fight uh, with Turkey uh, at a time when uh, I think Russia saw an opportunity to continue uh, supporting Turkey's um uh, the tension in the relationship between mm. you know, allies, Turkey's transformation into a more uh, strategically autonomous regional power, uh, rather than the, the Western power that we tended to to think of it of during the think of it as being during the Cold War, um, and of course when there's also this uh, Russo-Turkish competition in Syria and Libya uh, and elsewhere, and the opportunities for uh, horizontal escalation in these. Mm. Um, is certainly a consideration. At the same time, though, um, I think it also is important to look at this from the perspective of the role Russia is playing as a uh, balancer between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So even though uh, Russia is uh, allied to Armenia through the CSTO, it's also sought to position itself uh, as a uh, source of influence in Baku, um, even though Turkey, of course, is also uh, a big mm-hmm. Um, but what Russia doesn't want to do is to have this competition turn into a proxy competition between Moscow and Ankara. Mm. Uh, rather, I think what it seeks to do is create a situation in which both Armenia and Azerbaijan are dependent on Russia to get the things that they want. Uh, and so that meant uh, you know, letting Azerbaijan change facts on the ground to a certain degree mm. um, and then imposing a uh, settlement that allowed Russia to deploy peacekeepers uh, and that required uh, both Baku and Yerevan to turn to Moscow in order to uh, achieve the things that they were seeking to achieve over the longer term, rather than alienating 
uh, Azerbaijan by siding uh, full bore with Armenia. Right. Yeah, and I would also add to that that I, I have the sense that Putin wanted to punish Pashinyan uh, for, for 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 overthrowing Putin's ally Sarkisian um, in, in 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 Armenia's Velvet Revolution. Nonetheless, it was yeah, striking. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say I think that's right. And the, the other thing too, of course, is that the CSTO uh, is of which Armenia is a member. Um, according to its statutes, to the extent that one puts much stock in them, is committed to defending the territory of its members from foreign intervention. Um, now, Russia does not acknowledge Nagorno-Karabakh as being Armenian territory. So the argument was that as long as the fighting was confined to the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh and the uh, areas that uh, um, de jure belonged to Azerbaijan, but that were taken under Armenian control in the first Nagorno-Karabakh war, um, that it wasn't uh, part of the CSTO's competency to, to deal with that. Right. If the fighting spread to undisputed Armenian territory, then it would be a different story. Right. It was nevertheless really striking to see a NATO member uh, intervene in the former Soviet space in a kinetic fashion and for mm -hmm. Russia to not do anything about it because Turkey yeah. is a NATO member. It's a troublesome neighbor, NATO member, but it is a NATO member. It was intervening. Um, mm -hmm. It was helping Azerbaijan. And I mean, you you know, imagine for a moment if a different NATO member had done that, for example, yeah. you know, for example, the United States right? or, or the UK or, or, or what have you. It was just really striking to see that. And it does make sense. And the way you uh, explain it makes sense. The way it's discussed in the book makes sense. But nevertheless, it's striking to see that that actually happened. It is, and especially because Russian and Turkish forces, or Russian and Turkish proxies at least, have come to blows in both Syria and Libya. Mm. Um, in early 2020, uh, let's not forget, uh, upwards of 30 Turkish soldiers were killed outside of Idlib by an mm. airstrike probably carried out carried out by the Russian Air Force. Uh, so it's not as if there's no precedent for the, the militaries of these two coming into, into conflict. Mm. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's drill down a bit on Russia. I, I found the section of the book on Russia. I naturally found it fascinating because I'm a Russian guy like you are. But uh, but um, I mean, I like you talked a bit about the tension between empire and nation for mm -hmm. Russia, and this is something that I mean, we we all kind of know this. The cliche is it's not clear whether the empire formed the state or the state formed the empire when we're talking about Russia. Can you talk a little bit about that? This tension between the idea of empire and the idea of nation. Yeah, so I, I think we should be a little clear with the with the terminology. So empires, nations, and states are all different things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when we say nation um, in political science terms, that's a group of people, uh, mm -hmm. and as Benedict Anderson termed it, an imagined community, a, a group of mm -hmm. people who believe that they have some common feature that gives them a common political destiny. Um, and in Russia, what's always been interesting is that uh, the extent of the nation has been uh, determined by first the empire and now the state. Um, so there are, as most Russianists uh, will tell you if you start asking them about this, two different words in the Russian language that mean Russian mm -hmm. in English. Uh, one is Rasitsky, uh, which is linked to the state, Rasitsky. Uh, and encompasses everybody who is a citizen or mm -hmm. period, a subject uh, of that state. And then there's Ruski, which has become more prominent uh, right. 
in recent years, which means ethnic Russians uh, who comprise about 79, 80% of, of the Russian population. And historically, um, in all of these empires, but including in Russia, um, the emphasis has been on all of the inhabitants of the empire, irrespective of their ethnic identity, mm -hmm. being members of the nation. Um, and that's still uh, the case in Russia, although um, by the late 19th century, there was more of a push uh, to nationalize the Russian Empire. And we saw this, you know, come back at various points during the Soviet Union as well. And then again today, uh, where there's this tension between, you know, this greater, mm -hmm. you know, Russian world. Uh, right you know, goes beyond the state, but which includes people who have some sort of loose connection to Russia, whatever it may be. The idea of a Rasiski nation that's tied to the state and includes Tatars and Chechens and other people who live in Russia. And then Ruski, which is just the ethnic Russians. Um, and so these competing identity discourses about what it means to be Russian is that Russian world, is it Rasiski, is it Ruski, um, creates some of the, uh, the ideological or the intellectual groundwork for this um, imperial urge right. that exists in Russia. Because, you know, the Russian state, as it has done throughout its history, can change the emphasis uh, on, you know, which of these groupings it wants to focus based on, you know, which group of people it thinks belong to it in some way. Right. And that, that rhetoric has, we have seen this, this rhetoric shift, uh, Buddy Yeltsin, the, when he was president, use Rasiski more mm -hmm. often. He, when he addressed Russians, he said, you know, yeah. get, mm -hmm. dear citizens of Russia is, is, is like, he didn't use Ruski as much. Now, Putin has very decidedly ditched that. He, you never, mm -hmm. you rarely hear Putin say Rasianini or Rasiski. He, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's all Ruski. Does that, what does that indicate a, a more imperial mindset on, on Putin's part? Well, you, you know, you'd think it, indicates a less imperial mindset, right? Because it's kind of the, you know, only the ethnic Russians. And so there's this, um, you know, backlash against migration in Russia, as there has been in, in a lot of European countries. And about a decade ago, there was this push to, as they put it, you know, um, uh, feeding the Caucasus. Um, and they were referring specifically to the North Caucasus, which is part of Russia. And this was ethnic Russians who were saying, you know, why should Russian taxpayers' money go to propping up Chechnya, for instance? Right. This was Navalny's. This is one yeah, of Navalny's. Navalny, he, was one, he said this, too. I mean, it was associated with a kind of ethno-nationalist right. Mm -hmm. It was something that Navalny, uh, the, you know, big uh, democratic opponent of Putin, uh, said, too. Um, and so in that sense, you know, you'd think it was kind of anti-imperial. It's sort of smaller Russia, you know, focus on the ethnic Russians, cast off the, uh, mm -hmm. the dependencies. But it's also what's actually happening, I think, under Putin is that there's this deliberate conflating of these different ideas about what it means to be Russian. Because on the one hand, uh, Putin is using this term Ruski much more. Uh, and the laws have been changed. You know, there was a, a language law adopted a couple of years ago where it talks about the Russian language being the state language of the Russian Federation because it is the language of the state-forming right. Russian people. Um, so the emphasis is on ethnic Russians uh, as, you know, having this special role within the state. But at the same time, you have this 
imperial expansion, uh, which again, if you believe Putin's uh, ideas about Russians and Ukrainians comprising one people, uh, means that you know he sees Ukrainians as being effectively right. Ruski as well. But it's also targeted at places like the South Caucasus and Central Asia, where the population is not Ruski, um, but which nevertheless, for these historical uh, reasons, uh, and you know, perhaps for geostrategic reasons, Moscow con continues to have this kind of very uh, right. view. So there's this kind of deliberate fudging um, that's going on that on the one hand is emphasizing ethnic Russians and on the other is emphasizing the empire. And it's uh, sort of this idea of, you know, I guess nationalizing the empire again. It's keeping the empire, but trying to talk about it, think about it as being uh, something like a nation state. Yeah, and this this idea of the Russians being the state forming ethnicity in, in in Russia that that if I'm not mistaken was borrowed from the period of Nicholas the uh, First, when this idea of Russia the state the the state forming or the empire forming uh, nationality. I want to you mentioned Ukraine, and I do want to drill into this too because you 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 uh, you you had a great discussion of this in the book, and you also just recently published an op ed in the Washington Post um, along these lines about the perceptions of Ukraine and Belarus, which. You, you correctly note that Russia historically refers to them as great Russians, as in the Russians, little Russians, as in the Ukrainians, something the Ukrainians find deeply, deeply insulting, and white Russians in terms of the Belarusians. How do you how does this percept how do Ukraine and Belarus particularly play into this? I mean, are they they are not seen as a separate nation. They are seen as confused Russians. Basically. Yeah, I, mean, I like that term, confused Russians. I, I think that is probably a good way to describe how Putin and, and others in the Russian elite think about Ukraine and Belarus. So their position, which Putin has articulated on multiple occasions, notably in this long article that he released last summer, uh, where he goes through this whole history, uh, all you know, were part of this old uh, medieval commonwealth of Kievan Rus, uh, which is... Which was neither Russian nor Ukrainian. Correct. It was Kievan Rus. There were no... Yes. There, 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 right. right. Correct. And both Russia and Ukraine, and presumably Belarus today, claim uh, that Kievan... Claim Kievan Rus as being their ancestor. And the Russian argument is that Russia and the Russian language are the legitimate descendants of... Kievan Rus and the, the language and the culture that existed there. And that what happened is that in Belarus and Ukraine, foreign influence of some kind, whether Lithuanian uh, in the Belarusian case or uh, Polish in the Ukrainian case, somehow corrupted, you know, in, in air quotes, the authentic essence uh, of these people's Russian identity. Um, and because um, in the early modern period, uh, Belarus and Ukraine at various times were under uh, Polish, Lithuanian, and later uh, Austro-Hungarian uh, authority. Some of the cultural influences there uh, came from the West. Now, Russia, of course, was under uh, Mongol and, and Tatar authority. And so, you know, the Russian language has various influences from outside as well. Mm -hmm. These languages and the cultures have diverged in different ways because right. of their histories, and none is any you know more authentic or pure than the other. Um, but they've just diverged in various mm -hmm. ways. 
the Russian argument is that, you know, the Russian version is the true and authentic one. Uh, and the Ukrainian and Belarusian ones are, you know, somehow uh, corrupted by uh, the foreign influence that has been exerted on them. And so Putin draws a direct line between what he sees as the efforts of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and then the Austro-Hungarians uh, and then the Poles in the 20th century to, you know, deliberately uh, change the identity and the culture of people in Belarus and Ukraine as a way of pulling them away from their quote unquote authentic uh, identification with Russia. And so today, Putin again draws this direct line between NATO and the European Union, which he sees doing the same thing. Um, and then the Austro Hungarians, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, and um, the interwar Polish Republic. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a more a more rational way to look at this is said when well, we had this entity called Kiev and Rus, um, these three states were after after it broke up, came under one form or another of foreign foreign domination or foreign. I mean, I'm not even sure I want to look at the Polish Lithuanian case as domination. Yeah, um, it was just they, they came <laughs> under the influence of, of different. Uh, right. But they, but that that affected their history and affected the yeah. cultural direction they went in, and that is completely natural. That's how that's that's how nations and states are formed, right? Yeah. And and that is the the logical way to look at it. But this um this very odd, I, I find it very odd to say that they want to restore Kiev and Rus, which like quite a, quite frankly wasn't even Russian, really, right? Nor was it Ukrainian, right? It was its own thing, and also by the way, it didn't include. The Urals, the Volga, the South right. Caucasus, Central Asia, Siberia, the Russian Far East. So, if that's really what you know Putin wants, then we're talking about a radically different map from the one that exists today. Right, right, right. Um, and you, uh, you also have a, a good discussion about the attitudes toward the near abroad and the geopolitics of mm. empire and kind of this kind of plays into your chapter on Russia's civilizational empire and compatriots policy which is something I have always found pretty pretty fascinating what, what, what would you say about that yeah so again there are these competing identity discourses and you know in addition to the ethnic and the civic, uh, so the Rasiski and Ruski, there's also this more sort of imperial articulation of the nation, which is something I argue exists in all four of the countries I cover in the book. But in the Russian case, uh, it's expressed as either the Russian world, Ruski Mir, uh, compatriots, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of holy Rus, Svetaya Rus, mm -hmm. uh, or something similar. And exactly what these terms mean isn't always clear. Uh, it's contested. Um, compatriots are legally defined uh, in Russian legislation, mm. and they refer to people, and I don't have the exact quote here in front of me, but they refer to people uh, who have some cultural, historical, linguistic, uh, or kind of moral tie uh, to Russia. Uh, so it's mostly people who were left uh, in one of the smaller post-Soviet states when the USSR collapsed, uh, but wanted for one reason or another to maintain ties to Russia. Uh, so many of them are ethnic Russians, but many of them are not. Um, so it includes people like Ossetians uh, in Georgia. Um, Abkhaz. Yeah, Abkhaz, um, you know, various groups that became minorities in the newly independent states. Um, 
but it also uh, has evolved over the years uh, in different ways. And uh, at different times, Putin has talked about protecting not just compatriots, but Russians and Russian speakers, uh, which has been one of the big um, areas of focus in Ukraine. Um, you know, this idea that Russian military intervention is designed to protect Russian speakers from sort of mm. their language, losing their identity, uh, which, of course, is not what's happening at all in Ukraine. And it's just this you know, this very fluid shifting notion of who belongs to the national community. And again, we've seen this in all four of these, these empires and, and their successors, that membership in the nation or in the, you know, the community um, is not always the same and that it gets uh, revised, it, it shifts over time. Um, and that especially in the Russian case, those shifts track with the interests of the ruling dynasty or the ruling of it. Um, they can decide to include new populations uh, when um, that is, can help justify imperial expansion. Uh, and that was true in the 17th century, and it's true today. Now, in, in, in making the arguments you make in the book, which I completely agree with, there's always a trap for a scholar in this, is, is, is slipping into kind of an essentialist argument, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen this for centuries with Russia. This hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. You know me. I'm very skeptical that it is going to change or even – I mean I don't, I don't want to say that it can't change. Yeah. But it's very difficult for this to change. Are these four countries – and let's stick with Russia mainly – are they kind of doomed to, to have this imperial mindset or, 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 or did you look at cases where countries were able to break you – know, to, to overcome the imperial mindset? Yeah. I, I, I think you're right about the danger of essentializing some of these problems and I want to be clear that that's not what I'm doing mm -hmm. here. I don't think this is something about Russians inherently you know, behaving in imperial ways. I do think that the Russian state – has these imperial traces institutionally, geographically, um, and in terms of ideas. Culturally, uh, yeah. Culturally, yeah. And that as long as these institutions, geographical factors, ideas, cultural elements are there, it's going to behave in a, in a similar way. Um, and the same is true to varying degrees in the other three uh, states that I talk about. Now, again, when the formal empires collapsed, their successors all tried to build non-imperial states. Uh, in Turkey and Iran, especially, they tried to build nation states, you know, with very clearly defined borders based on a common culture and language. You know, uh, Ataturk and um, uh, Reza Shah Pahlavi sought to, you know, impose a very uniform culture. They sought to break links between people on either side of the new borders. Uh, and then in Russia, Boris Yeltsin tried to do something similar uh, in a less authoritarian kind of way. Um, but none of them were entirely successful uh, because these institutions and mindsets and geographic factors continue to exist. And you asked about states that have uh, lost this imperial vocation. Um, I think probably the best example of that would be Germany, uh, which I won't discuss in the book because, you know, doing four countries is hard enough, <laughs> um, but, and, you know, Germany unifies very late, um, but it unifies in the high point of European imperialism, uh, in which, you know, being a great power basically meant being an empire. 
Um, and because there were few opportunities to expand in the traditional uh, colonial space for, for Europe, which is to say um, Africa and, and Asia, um, German imperial expansion in the 19th and 20th century was largely in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's how you make sense of you know, what Germany was doing on the Eastern Front in World War I, and then especially in World War II. Um, and it was the defeat in those wars and the fact that Germany was occupied and had its political structure kind of pulled up from the roots and, and recreated that led to uh, the emergence of a very non-imperial German state in the post, well, in, in West Germany, uh, in the post uh, World War II era, and then today in the in the sort of united Germany. So I think it, it happens, um, and it, it, it's happened to a greater extent, I think, in Germany than elsewhere. It's happened elsewhere, you know, because of decolonization. Um, and this is one of the ways... One Great of the Britain, areas. of course. Yeah. Well, they're, they're kind of... Britain's kind of struggling with this. But I think, too, that this is one reason why Eurasia is different from Europe. Um, you know, for Britain, for France, for Portugal, for the Netherlands, for Spain, it was comparatively easy to turn their back on, you know, the colonial or the colonized periphery. Uh, it was, the periphery was far away. Um, there was never the same degree of, of cultural mixing. Uh, you know, one of the points I make in the book is that uh, you can't really imagine uh, a dynasty from India, say, coming to the throne in London. Right. Uh, that was just like never conceivable. Uh, but in Eurasia, where, you know, these borders are more fluid and people move back and forth across them, you know, you have these dynasties that take power that come from somewhere else. Um, and, you know, you don't see this in Russia as much, but in, in some of the other cases you do. Um, so like the last Iranian dynasty, the Qajars were Azerbaijanis or Azeris. Um, they were Turks. Um, and, you know, th this was a this was accepted this this was not a problem um and so even in the post-imperial era these connections are much closer the borders between the center and the periphery are more blurred um and it's harder comparatively for states on the eurasian landmass to draw a firm right between themselves between you know the metropole and the periphery let's say Right. And you're I mean, your case of Germany being one that broke free from uh, from 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 this. Um, the, the reason they did that, of course, is they 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 lost a yeah. war in a pretty big way, which is the perfect segue into the second half. And what I want to discuss in the second part of the, the program in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at how Vladimir Putin has tied his political future to Russia's imperial restoration. And what that means going forward, whether he succeeds or fails, both inside and outside of Russia. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National 
National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and very timely book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I got my copy. You all should get yours as well. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас, с новым веком. Since the 2014 annexation of Crimea and intensifying with this year's invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has linked his political future and legacy to the restoration of the old empire in some form. Jeff, you know in the book that this was not always the case, at least rhetorically. Early on in his presidency, Putin did appear to accept the notion of a civic nation in Russia. How do you see this transformation? What drove it? Was Putin, I mean, of course, I know we don't know this because we have to get inside of Putin's head here, but was, you know, was Putin not being honest about his real beliefs then and his intentions in his early rhetoric? Or was there in fact a transformation as you see it? Yeah, so this is my interpretation, which may be right or, or not, but um, I, I think that when Putin came to power, in 2000. He was relatively young, didn't have a lot of experience, uh, certainly um, with high-level politics. Um, he'd been, you know, a mid-ranking intelligence officer and then uh, a political functionary. Um, so he didn't really have, I think, well-formed ideas uh, on some of these issues. He had uh, attitudes and proclivities, um, but I don't think had really thought that much about some of them. And the Russia that he inherited in 2000 was one where this idea of a civic nation was kind of the dominant view, certainly among the ruling elite. Um, and I think that the people who were advising Putin, who were writing his speeches, um, included that kind of language uh, in, in what he said. Um, and it's not that he you know, disagreed with it, um, I kind of get the sense that he didn't have well-formed views about it one way or another. Um, and that experience and time and his own uh, disappointments and resentments um, have really played a role in consolidating this much more um, hostile, aggressive uh, outlook, which includes uh, this idea about you know, the nature of, of Russian and Ukrainian identity. Yeah. And you, I mean, I see a progression. I've actually tried to think this through because I did note the also note the kind of change in Putin's rhetoric over time. I mean, there was a several periods I would look at. I would say the periods of the colored revolutions from 2003 to 2005. What did you have happening here? You basically had civil society coming of age in these countries, um, Georgia and Ukraine. Um, and effectively, driving political change in that country, which Putin did not perceive to be in Russia's geopolitical interest. So I think that kind of sparked this need to, the empire is slipping away and I have to pull it back in. The 2007 speech at the Munich Security Conference um, was a certain, um, was was a, uh, which was an implicit threat in a lot of ways to say, all right, America, you're going to invade Iraq, we're going to invade places too. 
Right. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what it, that that's how I interpreted that. 2008, of course, the invasion of Georgia and, and the increasing intensification. 2014, the annexation of Crimea, and of course, this year. This has been a process. Um, and uh, it's, um, I mean, I don't know if Putin was always an imperialist and was just hiding it in the beginning or if he, if he, if he truly did change, but I think he did perceive a threat. He perceived that the rest of the former Soviet Union was going its own way and it was going a way that Putin did not perceive to be in Russia's interest. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think so. And I didn't really go into this in the book in part because I only had so much space, but the idea of Ukraine as being truly separate, as, as something truly foreign to Russia, um, was really hard for a lot of, of Russians, uh, even you know otherwise relatively liberal-minded Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, Vlad Zubak uh, has a new book out about the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. It's called Collapse, and he you know quotes a lot of the people uh, who are involved in the the breakup of the Soviet Union and the establishment of the new Russia, uh, people close to Yeltsin, uh, who just couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of Ukraine as a separate country. Uh, so I don't think in that sense that it's unique uh, to Putin. But I think you're right that developments in Ukraine, um, particularly the Orange Revolution, and then also the, the Rose Revolution in Georgia, really brought home how Ukraine was, and well, Georgia is in a slightly different basket, but especially in Ukraine, really brought home how, you know, not only was it a separate country, but that it was developing along a very different political path. Mm-hmm. One that did see the mobilization of civil society, one that had uh, a growing aspiration for integration with the West at a time when Russia was moving away from that. Uh, so it wasn't just that Ukraine had its own flag and its own Olympic team, but that it had a, a kind of different political outlook, uh, and that that was uh, signifying one that uh, Russia might not ever be able to uh, keep Ukraine in the fold, um, but also as Russia itself becomes more authoritarian, um, you know, if you believe that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. Well, if Ukrainians can have a mm-hmm. conversation, why not Russians? Right, right. I mean, it's 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 interesting that it took this long for them to notice the different way that Ukraine was developing, because Ukraine was developing differently almost from the get-go. Right. Think back to 2000 to 1993-94 when Russia and Ukraine were having identical polit- political crises. Right. Mm-hmm. Power struggles between parliament and the president. Mm-hmm. In Russia, we know how it was resolved. They blew up the parliament. In yeah. Ukraine, it was resolved with early elections. And then every election since then have been competitive. And the incumbent lost that early election. Yeah. Uh, Lina Kravchuk. So yeah. uh, and, 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 and every single election in Ukraine has been competitive. So it's really almost mm-hmm. right from the get go. Post-Soviet Ukraine and post-Soviet Russia were separated at birth, right? And and this, and it was only the events of 2004 and 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 after only just put an exclamation point on that for me. Yeah, I think that's right. But I also think that Yeltsin didn't feel as threatened by that divergence as as Putin did. Um, You know, Yeltsin was an outlier among the Russian political elite for a lot of reasons, Um, and he also was one of the godfathers of Ukrainian independence because right. he worked with Kravchuk and uh, the who just passed away yesterday um, to sign the agreement that dissolved the Soviet Union. So he 
actively sought Ukraine and Belarus and Belarusian independence um, as part of his bigger campaign to displace Gorbachev. So he accepted it from the beginning in a way that I think a lot of other people in the Russian elite never did or at least struggled to. It actually goes even deeper than that. If you, if I can believe the sources I was talking to when I was working in Russia as a journalist in the 90s, I was interviewing a Yeltsin aide about the decision to break up the Soviet Union. He said, well, the key thing was when Ukraine when Ukraine voted for independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he said that meant we had to break up the Soviet Union. And I naively asked why. And he looked at me like I was a little child. And he says, yeah. what kind of a union can we have without Ukraine? Right. So it was like almost yeah. bowing to reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the idea of doing what Putin's doing right now it didn't enter into didn't his mind. Cross their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was the reason to break up the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the time we have left, Jeff, I wanted to talk about this issue of Putin's legitimacy because he really has tied his legitimacy to restoring the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, the war in Ukraine is not going well. Um, right. It's pretty clear to everybody Russia's not going to achieve its initial war games or aims. War games. It it may yet succeed in partitioning Ukraine to some degree and taking 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 some or all of the Donbass or maybe not. I mean this is really, really fluid right now. But how do you how how much stake is in this for Putin, not just his legacy, I would argue his continued rule. Russia is not kind to leaders who lose wars. And yeah. so a lot is riding on this in, in, in terms of this because it'll it'll kind of undermine the entire identity that Putin kind of created for himself and for Russia. No, that's right. And if you think back to Putin's first two terms in office from 2000 to 2008, he really constructed his legitimacy on stabilization and prosperity. Uh, This was a reaction to the the chaos and upheaval of the 1990s. And oil prices were rising and the Russian economy was doing better. Um, Terrorism, uh, which had been a a big problem in in the late 90s and the early 2000s, with the eventual pacification of Chechnya uh, starts going down. Um, and the appeal that, that Putin gives to, to ordinary Russians is your lives are better and you have me to thank for it. And if you allow somebody else to come to power, we're going to go back to what we had in the 90s and, and nobody wants that. And that was fine until it wasn't. And it stopped being fine because the underlying factors that allowed it to happen started changing. So oil prices dropped, uh, corruption, you know, increasingly sucked out of the economy what money was flowing in, uh, living standards stopped increasing, um, sanctions were imposed after 2014, um, and there just wasn't a vision for for moving forward. And so this kind of you know Brezhnevian stagnation starts setting in. So at that point, Putin kind of pivots and really starts constructing his legitimacy around this idea of imperial restoration. I think we start seeing this in some ways, you know, you mentioned the Munich speech. I, I think the first inklings are evident there. We really start seeing it after Putin comes back in 2012, yeah. where he believes the U.S. has actively sought to prevent him from coming back and tries organizing a, a color revolution in, in Russia. You know, at one point he said, Hillary Clinton's paying the protesters on right. Bolotnaya Square out of her own pocket, right? Right. And then two years later, you've got the Maidan uh, in Ukraine. And in Putin's mind, I think, and again, without sort of reading his mind, um, that these are connected. 
Um, and the themes that he touched on in the Munich speech about the US overstepping its bounds uh, in every sphere um, becomes, you know, reversing that, stopping that becomes really his priority. So that means restoring Russian influence in these areas where he sees these color revolutions backed by the US uh, as having targeted Russian influence and authority. Um, and Ukraine, you know, after Maidan is the, the first target of this. And I don't think we get to where we are today without that first uh, military intervention in Ukraine. So if you, in the event that Putin is unsuccessful in Ukraine, do you think his rule is truly in danger? Um, yeah, I, I do. Now, what does success mean? Um, I think that's a, a tough question. Already, uh, Moscow has redefined uh, its war aims. When this war started, of course, they tried uh, making a bull rush for Kiev, uh, which, when it failed, um, pulled forces out of uh, northern Ukraine. Um, and instead of talking about uh, toppling Zelensky and, you know, quote unquote, denazification, um, really started to focus on the southeast, uh, the Donbass and, and the Black Sea coast more generally. Um, if they managed to take all of Donbass, um, is that enough of a success that Putin can sell it domestically? I mean, maybe. Mm. Um, if they fail to do that, can they define success down further in such a way that it's politically acceptable? Maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but if this war goes on uh, and they're not successful at achieving the aims that they've set for themselves, I do think there's a breaking point. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that uh, Russian rulers who lose wars don't have a great uh, track record. And usually when Russian rulers lose wars, it's because their military just kind of breaks. Uh, they don't have the logistical or productive capacity to sustain uh, long-term conflicts. And we saw this in the Crimean War, the, the original Crimean War in the, in the 1850s. We saw this in the Russo-Japanese Japanese War. We saw this in World War I. Um, and and, in the winter, and in the Winter War initially with yeah. Finland as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think all of those, you know, kind of suggest um, the danger that Putin faces. Although, of course, in the, in the Winter War, Stalin survives. Um, but I don't think that those underlying problems with logistics, with productivity and the ability to regenerate forces have been addressed in modern Russia any more than, you know, they were in, in 1905 or 1917. Yeah, no, we are. I mean, we, we, we never can quite right size Russia. We either look at it as being much stronger than it is or much weaker than it is. And it, it, it's what's becoming obvious as the war in Ukraine drags on is that they were much weaker than they are much weaker than we we thought they 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 were. Um, before we wrap up, because we're bump, bumping up against the end here, I did want to talk a little about this problem, this issue that this is not just a Putin problem mm -hmm. and that this problem will persist after Putin. Do you have any thoughts on that um, in terms of what I mean, Putin could could well this could very well spell the end of Putin. I, I argued at the beginning of the war, we're either witnessing the end of Ukraine or the end of Putin. Um, and and it's, it seems we, we so, so it's conceivable that mm -hmm. Putin could go down. Um, mm -hmm. How do you see Russian imperialism after Putin to wrap it up? Uh -huh. Well, one of the arguments I make in the book is that these imperial legacies are deep rooted because they're cultural, they're institutional and they're geographic, uh, which means they're going to be there irrespective of the identity of the person in charge. You can have a Yeltsin, you can have an Ataturk 
who tries to build this post-imperial state. But until or unless those underlying factors go away, you're still going to be grappling with these imperial legacies. And I think that'll be true of a post-Putin Russia as well. That doesn't mean that Putin isn't important. I think the way that any particular leader chooses to operationalize or make use of those legacies really matters. And in Putin's case, um, his uh, mistrust of the West, his almost paranoia, um, and his aggressiveness and willingness to use force may differ quite substantially from whoever comes next. Mm -hmm. So whoever comes next, I think is still going to be shaped by these underlying factors, but could choose to engage them, could choose to operationalize them in a different way. Right. No, and this is to wrap it up. I mean, this is something I hope policymakers bear in mind that that we don't repeat the mistakes that we made in the 1990s and decide that the Russia problem is now solved because then the Soviet Union was gone and now it's because Putin, if Putin is gone, these problems are going to persist. And I hope, I, I, I truly do hope we learned our our, our, our lessons from, from the 90s. Um, and unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Jeff, I can do this for you, with you for, for hours and hours and hours, but my producers would probably put a contract out on me. So I guess I'll just have to wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and very timely book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I got my copy. You all should get yours too. Jeff, thanks for a fascinating and enlightening discussion. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm always glad to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Leagues is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review view is that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.